and I'm proud of it. <laughs> um, we are moving forward right through Galatians. I didn't count it out, but I believe this is about week 14. Um, but also, side note, happy St. Patrick's Day. Um, many of you got the memo. I know my wife will be greatly pleased to see all you wearing green. It was predestined that I would wear green this morning by my wife. Um, she's the holiday master of the household. Um, and I believe she's hosting a time of lament and repentance for those who did not wear green. But if you remember being in school, right, if you don't wear green on St. Patrick's Day, someone in that class would pinch you, right? And every so often, like when something like that happens, or like St. Patrick's Day, my mind goes back to school. And I start to miss it a little bit, right? Like maybe it's the simplicity, because as you become an adult, life just becomes so much more burdensome, right? There's just all these bills you have to pay and life happens. But there's one thing about school I never miss. And it's not St. Patrick's Day. It's physics, my physics class in high school. I was terrible at physics, awful. You know, a classic physics, a classic physics class makes you do all those real-world tests, right? You drop the egg from a building. Maybe you build a bridge out of popsicle sticks. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Well, I failed all of those tests. I'm pretty sure my egg cracked before it even hit the ground, and my bridge maybe withstood the pressure of air. But from my physics class, I do remember Newton's third law of motion. You all know it probably. It's for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And this principle is true of our spiritual lives as well. See, the fruit of the Spirit, as Tim talk, taught us last week out of Galatians 5, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And these virtues are not things that we just drum up somehow. And they're not a list that we practice until we perfect, like Benjamin Franklin believed. Instead, these are characteristics of the Holy Spirit in us. So if you are, in fact, walking in the Spirit, these are the things that will, in fact, come out. See, in this last section of Galatians, Paul is going to transition us from doctrine to practice. And if that doctrine is truly believed and understood, he's going to show us how that will play out in our personal lives and our corporate lives. See, Paul explains that as believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit and walking in the Spirit, we have a responsibility to restore other believers in the faith. And as those who are walking in the Spirit, we will also reap what we sow. My main point, my big idea for this sermon that I want to get across is because we have been restored from death to life, we now extend grace for restoration today to our brothers and sisters in Christ in hope of our full restoration when Christ returns. So to serve as a quick recap, how did we get here? See, we've discussed that there was a group outside of the Church of Galatia that was moving in, and they were teaching that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was not enough. And Paul vehemently rebukes that saying Christ's work is enough for salvation. From there, we answer the logical question. Well, if Christ has given me freedom, I can now just do whatever I want. I can continue to sin. And Paul answers that with a hard no, right? So now, Paul is going to show us how the gospel impacts our lives within our communities and within our daily lives by teasing out these two application points. So if you would, look with me at Galatians 6, 1 through 5. First, I'm going to pray, just because this is a preaching the word and studying the word. This is a, a real, this is the word of God. I want us not to take that lightly. So Heavenly Father, be with us this morning as we study your word. We pray that you would speak to our hearts. Thank you for the gift of your word. I pray that where there's a need for encouragement, you would encourage. Where there's a need for conviction, Lord, you would convict. And in all of this, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified. So Galatians 6, verses 1 through 5, he says, Brothers, 
If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit, spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burden, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. So the first question Paul seeks to answer is, how do we respond when someone is caught in sin? The short answer is, we are a restored people. We are a restored people. So we should seek to restore others. As Tim mentioned last week, the spiritual life is not lived in a vacuum, right? When sinners get together, our sin is exposed and things get messy. You've heard the saying, if you find a perfect church, don't go there. Why? Because you'll be the one to mess it up. But the reality is, is there's no such thing as a perfect church. So if Paul, so Paul is now going to give us some direction in how to respond when someone is in fact caught in sin. And the fact that Paul is giving us this instruction assumes that sooner or later, Christians inside the body will in fact hurt each other. And we should understand this from a macro level, meaning the church as a whole, how one of us can actually hurt the body of Christ, but at the same time, how we can hurt others and others can hurt us in personal relationships. So, like I said, Paul is answering the question, how do I restore a brother who is caught in sin? But he's also answering a bigger question that has been answered since the very beginning of Scripture, and that is, am I my brother's keeper? Right? And as God answered Cain, Paul answers the church with an absolute yes. You are your brother's keeper. I am my brother's keeper. See, Paul keeps the sin vague. He says, if anyone is caught in any sin. See, he does this for a couple reasons. One, he's just laid out the two pitfalls. Oh, he does this for one reason. He's just laid out the two, two major pitfalls of the Christian life, right? One being the specific situation of the Judaizers and the other of someone who is abusing their freedom. As vague as it is regarding what kind of sin and who is sinning, the idea of being caught in sin is very specific. You see, he's indicating that it's not just an isolated incident. It's not just a one-time thing, but instead it's a pattern of sin. It's a lifestyle of sin. So you could also translate, if anyone, your brother or sister in Christ, is caught in a pattern of sin, this is a part of their life, you should restore them. Not if someone just sins in an isolated incident. We're all going to do that, and we don't need to go around just, as my seminary, one of my seminary professors said, just inspecting fruit like, ah, I see you just gossiped. You going to repent about that? Like, we can trust the Spirit in each other's life to do that. But when that, that gossip or, or that slander or that sexual immorality or um, you name it, road rage, becomes a pattern of life, that's when we enter into each other's lives and we say, hey, brother, what's going on? See, in both of these ditches, whether we're abusing our freedom or we're losing our freedom by holding on to our works, awful and equal sin is being committed. One is not worse than the other. See, cultures are going to vary as far as which type of sin is more culturally acceptable, right? See, like maybe in the past, America and other highly moral countries become blind to their workspace salvation, right? Phrases like, God helps those who help themselves, or I'm more worthy of God's salva- uh, grace because you know what? I don't smoke, chew, or go with girls that do. Like, those are lies, right? That's, that's, that's entirely what the book of Galatians is written about. But, like, the reality is, is you are worthy of being a son of God and an heir with Christ because of what Christ did on the cross. At the same time, and I believe this is a major challenge for my generation in particular, we are tempted to choose authenticity over holiness. See, we have seen so much so-called fruit, as Tim talked about last week, stapled onto trees, right? Just dying fruit, religious works that actually aren't by the Spirit. And we've been taught how to do that. So rather than actually pursuing holiness and pursuing walking in the Spirit, we just throw the baby out with the bathwater. And we say, you know what? Forget holiness. I'm an authentic sinner. I don't need, I don't, God loves me. Jesus loves me. Big deal. 
So whether you're in the camp of this works-based salvation or in this unrepentant, authentic sinner, Christ is ready to call you home and restore you to him. See, God has set the precedent that the church of Jesus Christ is not cleansed through the removal of sinners, but instead through the calling and the restoration of his broken people. See, from the beginning of God's covenant with his people, he has made it clear that he would remain faithful to them even when they left him right after being rescued. And we see this explicitly in Exodus 32. When Moses goes up to the mountain to be with God, what happens, right? The golden calf incident. The people of Israel have just been rescued from Egypt, and rather than turning to God, they get too bored down from the mountain and start worshiping a golden calf, calling the golden calf Yahweh. It's not just an idol. They're not worshiping another God. They've made an image of their God, Yahweh. They're saying, this golden calf has rescued us. So God, completely justifiable, says, you know what? I've seen this people, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing to his people. See, from the early days, God's people being called out, we have continued to struggle to follow him. We continue to drift. But rather than writing us off, God remembers his promise. So because we've been restored to God, we restore others. C.H. Dodd says it this way. The life of the saints is to correspond to the grace given, and this itself is the standard to which they are to aspire. It is on this ground that Galatians 6.1 and 2 Corinthians 13.11 that Paul applies here, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18.15-17, without going into the detail of the procedure. See, it's the same principle that is shared with us in 1 John 4.19 as well. We love, why? Because he loved us first. We restore other brothers and sisters in Christ because we have been restored. But so what does it mean to restore someone? In our English translation, the word restore just simply means to bring back, to return or repair to its original condition. Now in the original language, and to be clear, in case you're just wondering, original language, what is he talking about? Old English? No. So the book of Galatians was written to a specific people, right? The, the, the Galatians. <laughs> At a specific time, for a specific purpose, and in a specific language, right? And that language here is Greek. So anytime one of us up here is like in the original language, we're not trying to just tote some sort of biblical knowledge. We're just trying to, we're doing the work to just say, hey, this is what's really being explained, just kind of adding some color, just to give some context there. So I digress. In the original language, <laughs> this, it, it simply means to set right or to mend like a net. And in the Old Testament, it means to make perfect to its original condition. It carries the imagery of taking a limb that is out of socket and setting it in place. So in this picture speaks to us two ways. First, it shows us that sin it separates Christians from the local body of believers. It, it's like a dislocated elbow, right? Our shoulder. I don't know if any of y'all have had that issue. I, I dislocated my shoulder once playing basketball. It, it hurt so bad, right? You can still move it kind of, right? But it hurts. And it just didn't function as it was intended to. And when we sin against a brother or sister in Christ, when we are unrepentant, 
it separates us. It drives a wedge between us. We become dislocated. The Christian life will become dislocated from time to time. That's inevitable. That's why Paul is writing this, right? See, we're still at war on this side of heaven. And when people struggling with sin around each other, our sin is exposed. But with that said, the Christian life should not continue on dislocated. And we should fight for restoration with each other. See, the dislocated joint is not going to just naturally set itself back in place. The, like I, I, when I did it in basketball, the trainer there, she had to grab my arm and push firmly one way and it just pop right back. Sorry for the graphic detail. <laughs> but it wasn't just going to sit there. Like it just wasn't going to happen, right? We had to fight for it. She had to pull my arm and I didn't want her to do it, but it had to happen. <laughs> now, just think for a moment, the links to that, to which that had to happen for my arm Think for for a moment the lengths to which Christ went to restore his body, right? He, sitting in heaven, left his throne to pursue his people, to pursue his bride. It says in 1 Peter 2.24 that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. See, if the grace and effort given from Jesus Christ is in fact the standard, as C.H. Dodd says, we need to ask ourselves a question. Where am I not fighting for restoration? Who am I not forgiving? Who am I not repenting to? It is not the intent of the church to remain separated from one another. We are not intended to just write someone off because we had a bad issue at one church and just go function over at another church thinking like nothing happened. Who do you need to forgive? Now, there may be a time in your life where restoration is not possible or it hasn't happened yet. If that's you today, I want to encourage you with a couple things. First, you can only control your side. Secondly, you are not the Lord of restoration. Jesus is Lord of Restoration. So we do what we can. We'll talk a little bit more detail, but we humbly come towards our brother or sister in Christ. We pray for them. We pursue them, but in the end, we do our best to live at peace with everyone, as Paul tells us. And the reality is, if someone continues to live outside of restoration, even though you've sought it humbly, and and your conscience is clean in that, that person is now your functional enemy. And what should we do there? Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 to pray for your enemies. So that's our next response. So we fight for restoration by engaging with the other person as much as possible. So, but Jesus also gives us clear instructions on what to do when on a personal level, it doesn't work. Like if if I have sinned and we all can relate here. If I've sinned incredibly against my wife and she comes to me and says, Josiah, you're doing this. Sorry, I went to the last sermon. If we're gonna go there anyways. If Lisa keeps pushing me down the stairs and I'm like, Lisa, you have to stop pushing me down the stairs. And she's like, no, I'm not gonna do it. Well, then I go to Justin, who's in my community group. And I'm like, Justin, Mikel, y'all have to help me. Lisa keeps pushing me down the stairs. And so we get together, we go to, go to Lisa. This is exactly as it's laid out in Matthew 18. Open your Bible and read it. And to some extent, this is not literal translation. But then we go together, we talk to Lisa. It's still not working. She keeps pushing me down the stairs. What do we do next? We go to the church leadership. We go to the elders. And then the elders go to Lisa. And in each one of those steps, our goal is not to embarrass the, the offender, right? No, our goal is restoration. Our goal is to see the other party return to Christ. But there may come a point, and this is, this is the last ditch effort. This is not our first response. There comes a point when it's just restoration, it's not happening. And how do we respond? We don't just wipe everything clean. It's, oh, whatever. It is what it is. I'm a martyr. I suffer for Jesus Christ. No, 
It says, treat them as a Gentile. And what, what Jesus is saying there is, you treat them as a, someone who doesn't know Christ. You say, hey, you need Christ. You preach the gospel to them at that point because they need to repent and find restoration in Christ. But in all of those steps, we're not trusting our own ability, right? We're not trusting our own wisdom. We're not trusting our own rhetoric. We're trusting the Holy Spirit because at the end of that passage, it says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We trust God at work in restoration. So when restoring, we should follow two things. First, that it is done in a spirit of gentleness. And secondly, that we watch ourselves lest we be tempted. Excuse me. When Paul says, you who are spiritual, he's being a little cute with his words, as sassy Paul always is. It's a reference to the so-called spiritual party or the Judaizers, right? See, when Paul says you who are spiritual, he's not referring to some elite spiritual person or the pastor or the pope or just the wise elder in the congregation. He's referring to the spirit-filled believer. If you're with Christ, filled with the Spirit, he's talking to you. Tim Keller explains it this way. He says, Christians need to be neither quick to criticize nor afraid to confront. We will accept our responsibility as Spirit-filled brothers to help. See, more often than not, we tend to drift to one side of confrontation to the other, right? We're either that intense fruit inspector, right? As I referenced earlier, always just kind of on guard, ready to point out someone's sin, or we're the lackadaisical kind of, yeah, they're struggling there, but I don't want to stir the pot. I don't want to make anyone feel judged. See, restoring someone in gentleness, it should be a characteristic of someone who is walking in the Spirit, as we talked about last week in Galatians 5, 23. Since it is, in fact, the fruit of the Spirit, if we find ourselves not wanting to confront someone in gentleness, should we muster up more gentleness so that we can do a good job? No. If we find that we're having trouble confronting someone with gentleness, I would say check two things. First, we need to check our motive. See, the spirit of gentleness can literally literally be translated as meekness or humility. See, it's the same idea and the same word used in Matthew 21.5, when Jesus, the king of the universe, has his kingly processional riding in on a donkey. He was lowly. And that servant mentality is our heart and our mindset when going to confront someone. We're serving our fellow brother and sister when we confront them in sin. It's not a spiritual superiority, right? It's a brother, sister, let me serve you by pointing out something you might not be seeing. Secondly, we don't need to muster up more gentleness. We need to connect with the Holy Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit are cultivated by being with the Spirit, by spending time in our our Bible, by praying individually and together, by singing to God, by delighting in his creation, by talking to the gospel with a friend. See, we don't need a five-point plan for confrontation, We need Jesus. See, Jesus addressed the spiritual arrogance with confronting someone and how we should respond to a brother who sins and the story of a prodigal son in Luke 15. You've more than likely heard this story before, probably heard a lot of ways. I mean, it's, it's a story of redemption. We love it. A man has two sons. One son says, I want my inheritance. I know it's early. I want it now. What does the father do? He gives him his inheritance. What does the son do with his cash? He goes and lives. It says he wastes it on reckless living. When he hits rock bottom, literally eating the pig's food, which is also, side note, which is also a, not just just gross, but it's actually desecration. In the Jewish community, that is unholy. It's the lowest of the low he could get to. What does he do? He returns home. He thinks, I'll just be a servant. I'll work for everything I get. When he, when his father sees him, 
what does he do? He runs to him. He runs and embraces him. He says, now my son has returned home. How does the brother return, or how does the brother respond? He's furious. He's filled with righteous anger. Now, albeit self-righteous anger, but it becomes a look what I've done, Father, versus look what he's done. Look who I am versus look who he has, who he is. See, the brother misses it. The father has set the standard for how we are to embrace our fallen brother or sister in Christ. And instead of looking to the father as the example, he looks to himself as the standard. So where does this happen in our lives? You see, leading, let me back up a little bit. Leading into the story, why does Jesus tell this story? Like, a lot of times, we, we think of this story just simply as like, wow, God loves his children, which is true. That's a true point in the story. But the whole purpose of Jesus telling this story wasn't to demonstrate the fact that he loves his children. He does that other places. The point here in this story, and we see this, where the way Jesus sets the story up, he's currently, when he tells this story, he's sitting with tax collectors and sinners, right? And so the Pharisees see him, and rather than just being like, wow, that's amazing, you love the sinner, they're like, why does he do that? What is wrong with him? And so Jesus tells the story. The point of the story was not to demonstrate the love of God for his children. It was to demonstrate, hey, your religious spirit is wrong. Your indignation towards a fallen brother or sister is wrong. Have the mercy of God within the body of Christ. Is that our attitude? Do we have people in our life when we see sin finally catch up to them, we say, serves them right. You reap what you sow. <laughs> I, I know I've had to repent of that multiple times in my own life. Or you see them and you just see someone struggling with their sin and you just think, well, at least I'm not like them. I'm not that bad. The older brother missed it. He missed how his father responded to finding, to, to having his son return. God wants us to rejoice in the restoration of our brothers and sisters. That's why the way Jesus lays it out in Matthew 18 should not be so terrifying because it's an effort for a time of rejoicing. See, and Paul also reminds us that, I promise you, I know that was one verse, the rest is a lot faster. Um, the restoration sometimes is not quick. It will be burdensome. That's why he tells us to bear each other's burdens. Some will be easier than others, but there will be fellow believers who live in our lives who constantly drift away. And we will resolve to stay in the fight with them. As Tim Keller said, we will help them. When we bear the burden of seeking to restore someone, we fulfill the law of Christ. And as we talked about probably four weeks ago in chapter 514, this is the new covenant as Jesus explains in John 13, that we love one another as I have loved you. See, the second thing to remember after approaching in a spirit of humility, the second thing to remember is that when you go to correct someone or restore someone back to fellowship, we need to make sure we keep watch of ourselves or take inventory of ourselves. And I have a humble spirit that is ready to repent. As David prayed in Psalm 139, 23 and 24, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. We want God to purify us and rather than fighting the sanctification process, we want to lean into it no matter how hard that may be at times. So what are we watching ourselves from? You know, it is true that we, when we go to confront someone, we run the risk of getting pulled into the same sin, right? You've heard the phrase, you lay with dogs, you get fleas. And it's true, by, by allowing ourselves to get into the mix, to get close enough, we run the risk of getting fleas. And it's important to stay prayed up and important to have accountability. 
But I don't think that is Paul's biggest concern here. More than likely, within the context of Galatians, what Paul is speaking to is the great risk that we may fall into spiritual pride, like the older brother, and think, well, I'm saved because I don't act like so-and-so, and not because Christ has forgiven my sin. just as he has forgiven my brother's sin. Pointing out others' sin while godly and encouraged always runs the risk of pride, which is why Paul gives this warning. He speaks further in verse three, saying if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We should never assume that we are too holy, righteous, pious to be caught in sin, whether spiritual pride or moral living. See, the danger when comparing ourselves to others is we pervert the standard. Even if we know that our friend has fallen and is not doing what God has called him to do, we think the fact that we haven't fallen that far makes us more worthy of God's grace, which is exactly the false gospel that prompted the writing of this letter. So after pointing out the specific idea of restoring a brother and sister in Christ, Paul is going to turn our focus to a spiritual law. It's a very common spiritual law. Probably talked about most within the context of money. And very likely has very little to do with money. It's going to be the spiritual practice of sowing and reaping. You look at verses 10, or 6 through 10. I want to read it just as a refresher. It says, One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Paul wants us to see that our daily life, meaning what we consume, what we say, how we treat others, what we think about, it matters. And he does this by explaining to us this universal law of sowing and reaping. And as we've talked, this is true in agriculture, right? I don't know if any of you are farmers in here, but even if you're not, you get the idea. You plant an orange seed, you get an orange tree. Brilliant. This is generally true in health as well, right? If you exercise and eat healthy, you'll be healthy. If you eat bonbons and a greased delight and never do any exercise, you'll be unhealthy. Here, Paul is making the point that what we do every day both publicly and privately matters. And it affects our lives today, and it even affects our lives eternally. See, when, God, when Paul says that God is not mocked, he's making the point that we cannot fool God with our religious actions. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says that the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, the Pharisees didn't fool Jesus when he walked this earth, and our general spirituality isn't gonna fill, our, our, excuse me, our special spirituality will not trick Jesus today. If you go to church, or if reading your Bible is something that only happens publicly, or is simply just a part of your image that you have to drive, and it just has no bearing on you when you're alone, you're not going to reap of the Spirit, like it says. Those are fleshly things at that point. Like, just as a side warning to our current culture, we want to be careful that we don't fall into what's been called Instagram Christianity, right? Like nothing is wrong with sharing Bible verses, devotional insights, worship music on social media. That's a great thing. That's fantastic. That's a pretty neat 21st century development for us to like find great resources out there. However, with that said, that cannot be our standard for godly living, just what we show. 
Now, I've heard, I heard the quote, uh, quote at a retreat. I believe it's Barry St. Clair. He's getting credit for this quote. <laughs> that has just stuck with me. It says, never let your public worship outdo your private worship. See, if we're actually, if we are more in love with Jesus when we are culturally expected to be, then what we're actually in love with is our cultural Christianity. And what I want to tell you today, if you find that in yourself, that when you get away from the conference, you get away from the the fast, you get away from the worship conference, if you just find that your spiritual life is blah, I want to invite you to run to Jesus. You know, it, it might feel dry at times, but get in the word, get in prayer, because Jesus is far richer than anything that our culture, that our that our Christian culture that we have developed could ever be. Now, I'm going to sound like I'm contradicting myself. But the reality is, depending on who you are and what you struggle with, you're going to fall to one side of the ditch or the other. If we are never praying together, if we're never singing together, if you read Psalm 96 that Nate read earlier, it's a strict command to sing together. Singing is not exactly a... uh, a la carte option on the Christian life. God created us as singing beings. So I encourage you, side note, sing. If you're never singing together, if you're not sitting under the preaching of God's word, if you're not studying the Bible with other believers, you're not sowing into the Christian life that God has called us to. See, we are a communal people. See, this is why next week we're gonna do a prayer luncheon little prayer, lunch, and learn. The idea, it's not just a prayer meeting after, after church, okay? The idea is to talk specifically about how do we pray together? How do we biblically pray together? If we actually believe that the Bible is real and we believe that God has called us to pray together, how are we supposed to do it? So next week, I'm gonna encourage you to sign up. We're gonna talk about that. How does the church pray together? See, God's people have always been communal. When God calls Abraham in Genesis 12, he says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. Jesus takes that further and he ushers in the kingdom of God. With both of these images given to us through scripture, we should understand that the Christian life is not intended to be isolated. See, and even jumping back to verse six, this is actually explained within this passage. He says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches going to look at Tim Keller again, he points out that, yes, this is more than likely a reference to sharing money with the pastor, right? Those who do ministry. But the phrase, share all good things, implies so much more than money. It's not about money. He points out that we do not want to become consumers, where it's some sort of transactional relationship where I sort of tithe, and then the pastor gives me a little shot of Jesus juice, and I'm good for my week. No, that is not the intention at all of the church of Jesus Christ, right? The idea is that you fellowship with the pastor. You are together in unity with Tim, with Alex, with our elders, with your community group leader. We are not just consumers in this world today within the church. We are a body of believers. So if we sow the flesh, whether feeding our flesh with moralistic works, thinking that I'm so good, I do, I serve here, I give the missions, yada, yada, or if I serve through immoral behavior, or even just our life is filled with amoral behavior. Things like just my life is full of sitcoms and Facebook and just all I think about is friends or sports or wherever your daydream life goes. You are gonna reap the flesh. That's what Paul's trying to explain to us in our Christian life. What we do on this day-to-day basis matters. And he calls it corruption. When we sow the flesh, we reap corruption. So what does he mean by that? A lot of times... In the Bible, corruption means death, destruction. So as Paul, y'all know the answer to this, but I have a problem doing this when I talk. I'm going to ask a question y'all know. Is Paul contradicting himself? No. He can't mean death. That would make no sense. He would have just spent five chapters explaining something and then contradicting it. So when he says uh, corruption, what does he mean? The idea of corruption can also mean just simply to corrupt morality. See, in other words, when we sow and reap the flesh, we mess with our moral compass or our conscience. 
Paul explains this further in 1 Timothy 4.2, excuse me. He says that those who are teaching false doctrines, their consciences, consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. In other words, they've lost their feeling of morality. When they sin, it doesn't affect them anymore. See, there can come a point for a believer where they sin so much that they just consume garbage and they just sin and we just think, mm, it's the world today, it's okay, whatever. But the reality is it hurts us, it affects us. Sin will never bring joy. With that said, God can still redeem that and he can bring you back. So if you're a believer in here today and you're finding yourself, and we all drift that way sometimes in our life, depending on who we're, who we're with, what we're watching, what we're consuming, if that's you, I want to encourage you to get with a believer and, and ask them to take inventory on that. Just get another's opinion. Is this holy? Is this righteous? Or is this sin? Is this wrong? I tell her, you, or I lead the youth um, here at Trinity, and I know I've said it multiple times because I needed it when I was young, and I realize it now at 29. What you consume matters. And so as an adult, I still need that reminder. So if you're sitting here and plus 50, don't forget it. Right. What we consume matters. Amen. When the Christian slips back into sin, our salvation is not lost. Hear me say that. When we slip back into sin, our salvation is not lost because our salvation is not tied to our works. It's tied to Jesus Christ. I'm gonna say that a lot because it needs to continually be heard for us. But our little sin will hurt our lives here. We may not always see it. And it may even be so gradual that we drift and we're further away than we realize. I had a friend, I'll keep this short, who got lost at sea. If you want the full story, come see me afterwards. And he talks about getting off the sailboat and being on the, his little dinghy that would like, or pontoon boat, excuse me, that would take him through the canal. The motor died. And he's trying to fix the motor. And he said, it felt like 15 seconds, but it was two minutes. And after two minutes, it was too late. That's what happens in the Christian life a lot. A little bit here, a little bit here, that we don't realize, and we don't even see it. We will reap in God's time. See, Paul speaks so directly to this, saying that it is a fact, it is a law that will take place. The idea of sowing and reaping is foreign to us for many reasons. And on top of that, we forget how much time it can take. Simon Sinek, he's a leadership uh, author and speaks to businesses, does consulting. And speaking on the context of in, on, in the context of influence of leadership, he says this. He says, impact doesn't happen because of intensity, but because of consistency. If you go to the dentist twice a year without brushing your teeth, your teeth will what? Fall out. You have to brush your teeth every day twice a day for two minutes. What does brushing your teeth a day, twice a day do for you? Nothing, unless you do it every day. It's the consistency. Going to the gym once for nine hours doesn't get you into shape. Working out every day gets you into shape. He goes on to say, we treat leadership with the same intensity principle. And I would say, we do the same thing in our spiritual lives. We go to a conference, we start a fast, we get that spiritual high, but then when we hit a valley, we quit. We think, oh, it's not really doing anything for me. It's dry. I don't want to do it anymore. It's, it's just not bearing impact on my life. All those things are good, but they should never be done in a vacuum. What is actually going to impact our lives, and this is the truth that Paul is laying out here, is that daily Bible reading, that daily prayer, 
both privately and together. The daily preaching of God's word. I mentioned earlier this idea of like, we come to church to get like our little Jesus juice for the week. What's gonna actually bear an impact on your life is years of preaching, sitting under the preaching of gospel exposition. It's not just one sermon here, one sermon there, and your life changes. We simmer. We're the slow cook, the broil, right? That's the Christian life. The Christian life is a marathon in hope of eternity. You might go to a community group and you just don't feel like you're connecting, right? Don't quit on that. Keep pushing. The Christian life, the Christian community is not just going to happen overnight. The The reward is rich, though. See, you might be thinking, okay, cool. How do we trust this, though? Yeah, Paul brings this spiritual law up, but big deal. I've been doing this stuff for years, Josiah. I don't feel like much is changing. See, we can trust this. We should trust this because it's in the Word. But you see, God is so gracious to us to give us an even greater example. See, when the readers would have heard this, they probably would have thought of someone else's teaching. Turn with me to John 12, 23. Jesus uses this law to illustrate something. It's going to be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles. Starting in verse 23, he says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. See, in the same way, that Jesus sets the example of what it means to restore others. He shows us the ultimate way that we reap what we sow. When Jesus gave his life for us, he reaped a harvest by bringing many sons to glory, as it says in Hebrews 2.10. Christ's death reaped a harvest, and when someone comes and confesses Christ as their Savior, we witness the harvest. Uh, Church father Tertullian said that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Christ, take that a step further, Christ's blood is the seed of the church from generation to generation across every tribe and tongue. Because Jesus sowed his life, sinners without hope were reaped as fruit You as a believer in Jesus Christ are the reward of Christ. You are the harvest. Our lives have been reaped partially now. We have salvation today, and we will be harvested entirely when Christ returns. See, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3.12, for now we see in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall now know fully, even as I have been fully known. When you feel tired of sowing spiritual things, don't lose heart. Or as it says in our passage specifically, don't grow weary. Continue to do good. Continue to fight to restore. Continue to be in the word and to meet the Lord in prayer. If you don't like going to community group, don't quit. If you feel awkward on a Sunday morning, don't quit. Trust that the Lord is doing something in your heart and in your life. We can know that we will receive a reward for when we reap of the Spirit because Christ sealed that example when he rose again and when he ascended and when he sent his Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 4.13-14 says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, 
God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. If the worship team would join me. Trinity, for those who aren't a member but are believers, people of God, hear this. We will be restored with God face to face in the end. Not because of the good we've done or the good we have sown, right? But because Jesus has sown his life and his blood and has reaped his church as his, his reward. You are the reward of Christ. Let that sink in. You are prized. You are prized no matter where you sit today. If you are a believer in Christ, you are prized as his reward. When we sow in the spirit, we practice our hope that Jesus is coming back for us. We see something further than just this life. We participate in our sonship of God as we've referenced earlier in this series. We show the world that we believe that this is not the end and a true harvest is coming. And our Lord of the harvest, Jesus Christ, will in fact take us to be with him. We sow not for things of this earth or for the fleeting momentary riches and pleasures. We sow looking forward to eternity. I want to read a prayer from a book that I, I use sometimes to guide my prayer life. It's called Every Moment Holy. And I, my prayer is that this encourages you to look at your life daily as a chance to sow and hope for eternity. And we're going to sing, Be Thou My Vision. And as we sing that, that last verse, High King of Heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joy, O bright heaven's sun. May I, may I be with Jesus. If we would stand. As I said, this is a prayer from this book. Indeed, an hour is coming when we shall find ourselves freed at last from the very presence of sin and liberated to live eternally in that glorious freedom and knowledge and beauty and perfection which is ever our intended birthright. Even now, O oh Lord, in the dark of this night, let our lives be lit by rumors of these coming glories. Amen.